0: Good evening. I'm Liam, one of the pastors here. We're going to be preaching through this text tonight, so let's keep it open in front of us and let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding it, shall we? Our Father, when your Son was on this earth, there were many who approached Him with questions and items for debate. Their error was seen in the fact, as according to your son, they neither knew the scriptures nor the power of God. Lord, Lord, I pray that as we study this text tonight, that could not be said of us. May we know your scriptures and know your power and be changed by what we come to know tonight. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, to most people in our city, uh, pride is a good thing Uh, be proud of what you've achieved people say to us we're encouraged to boast in things that we've done well but there's a form of pride that of course is is seen as a bad thing uh, even by folks who would not call themselves Christians have you ever heard of anyone blowing their own trumpet well the reason why we have a saying like that is because we recognise that there is a form of pride that is not a good thing but a bad thing Um, Real Madrid footballer Ronaldo I think is one of the masters of blowing his own trumpet Uh, and I had to laugh, Uh, last December he unveiled um, a statue in his hometown uh, a statue he commissioned, a statue of himself and it stands in a Ronaldo-like pose outside the Ronaldo Museum a museum he established for himself in an interview with a BBC reporter, he said, this is a very special moment to have a statue of me. I love that. In a weird way. Not everyone, of course, is as showy as Ronaldo. You ever come across people who share something, but in a more kind of, it's a muted boast. You know, it's not quite, I'm awesome, but it's, it's, it's what has been, you know, especially in social media, it's come to be known as the humble brag. Have you heard of that? The humble brag, where you get rich people on Facebook and say, oh, you know, I, I just realized that having moved into my house, I've only used one of the five showers. That's a humble brag. In other words, they've got a colossal house. Well, the humble brag in the self-commissioned statues shows that actually pride is not all good. There's a form of pride that's actually a bad thing. But, 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 hardly anyone recognizes, I think, that pride can be a wicked thing. An evil thing. Did you know that? It's not hard to see why. When you think of how pride manifests itself, even in us, you know, when you're proud, you live as if life is all about you. You desire popularity, you feed on th- these kinds of things, you love it when people praise you. Conversely, you stress when people criticize you. You feel upset when others are praised and you are not and that can turn you into a monster. Because the jealousy you feel can make you think and act in really unkind ways towards other people and that is wicked. So let me give you a warning at the start of this sermon tonight. Pride can turn you into a monster and can turn the people around us in our city into Monsters. And tonight in Acts 12, we're introduced to a man called Herod, who is a monster enslaved by pride. He was driven by a desire to be both powerful and popular. Look with me at verses 1 and 3, and I'll show you. This isn't the Herod, of course, who killed the innocents in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. That was his granddad. This isn't the Herod who served up John the Baptist's head on a plate, as we heard this morning. Uh, That was his uncle. But this guy has the same track record. It's not good. As you look at verses 1 and 2 with me, he's driven by a a prideful desire to be powerful. He laid violent hands on the church, is what it shows us. Now, he hated minority uprisings in the area over which he ruled. And he viewed the church as a minority uprising. Rome who were really in control. Herod was just like a puppet. They liked stability and if Herod couldn't deliver it he'd be removed from office. So what better way to quell this uprising uh, of this thing called the church which is growing and growing and spreading and spreading than to target its leaders. So along with Peter and John there's a man called James who was one of the inner three, he was one of the twelve disciples, but one of the inner three that Jesus liked to take along with him. For example, to the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw his glory shining. But James is the one who's captured and put to the sword. Which shows us that Herod is willing to lay violent hands on James because he would do anything to retain his power, and pride is at the root of that evil. It's monstrous. Then when you look at verse 3, you've got Herod driven by a prideful desire to be popular as well. When he saw that this, in other words, the killing of James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now the response of the Jews to the killing of James is the first century equivalent of the like button on Facebook. Herod loves it. It's popularity. He loves it. And for the sake of greater personal gain, he decides he's going to arrest Peter with the intention of killing him also. Have you noticed the way that Luke, in telling this story, maps it out in the same way that he does with Jesus in this gospel? In the gospel of Luke. It's round about the same time. He intends to bring him out in the morning for trial before the people. We're meant to think Peter is a goner. But this is system. This is herod's intention it's his plan and it's monstrous because it's for personal gain there is no indication in this text whatsoever that herod had any political beef with peter no hint of any theological disagreement the text shows that the reason for seizing him was to bolster his ratings in the opinion polls and pride is at the root of that evil suppose there's an application straight away for us for those of us who believe in jesus Don't be surprised if you face opposition as a Christian as a consequence of people's pride. Every single person in our city struggles with pride. Most see it as a good thing. Some might see it as a bad thing, but hardly anybody sees it as a wicked thing. The truth is that some people in our city will tend to dislike or disdain us, not because they have a theological issue with us, but because maybe they want to make themselves feel good, feel superior feel like they're better than us maybe by ridiculing us for what we believe we don't exactly have political despots ruling over us and arresting church leaders around sadly that's the case for folks in various countries across the world and we should pray for them but we should be aware of the the wickedness of pride and how people seek to rule their own lives and how it can make them treat us as christians well the good news is this passage tells us something that we all need to remember in that instance that God opposes the proud God opposes the proud and is on our side and unless we as Christians are crystal clear on this we will either keep our heads down or withdraw but neither will save souls and neither will be conducive to taking this gospel to the ends of the earth and that's what we're called to do so God acts in this text We see him oppose the proud, humbling Herod, using three means. Earnest prayer, number one, open doors, number two, and wormy death, number three. Number one, earnest, I never thought I'd use that as an outline. Uh, One, earnest prayer. Now, I don't know what image, as, as you look at verses four and five in particular here, I don't know what image is conjured in your mind when you think of maximum security. My mind automatically goes to Alcatraz. You know, there it is in San Francisco Bay, surrounded by colossal walls and a huge amount of water. They reckon only three people have escaped, and they reckon that they drowned before they even got to land, so it's pretty secure. But to me, verse 4 sounds a bit like Alcatraz. Herod is kind of showing off his power. He's trying to put these guys in maximum security because no one, <laughs> no one is going to take this prize prisoner away. No, if this guy is going to give him gain in terms of, political power and popularity with the people there's no way anyone's stealing him away and it's a show of power from the inside then or from the outside sorry this all just looks totally hopeless until you read verse five so peter here's the, re- the repetition to get this luke saying get this peter was kept in prison but the church was earnestly praying for him And the importance of this, the prayerfulness and the constancy of the church in prayer for this is mentioned in verse 12. A second time it's mentioned that many people had gathered to pray. You know what this shows us? As we see it, by the end of the text, Peter's released, walking about free. It tells us that Herod is humbled, first of all, by a weak but praying church who called on God to act in sovereign power. Luke is showing us that the release of Peter... Is tied to the prayers of the church. They were praying earnestly, it says. This was no timid sick list. This was strenuous petition. They were praying earnestly. The same word regarding earnestly uh, is used to describe the way Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. They were praying earnestly, but it's interesting that Luke actually goes on to show some of their frailty in this text doesn't he He shows us they were praying earnestly but they were not praying perfectly they weren't super saints in verses 12 to 16 Luke shows us their weakness even when Peter free from his chains arrived at the gate at Mary's house the the church wasn't exactly saying aha we've been expecting you Peter no, it was, it was Rhoda was so surprised to find Peter at the gate that she left him standing there for ages. I mean, Peter's a fugitive. He's half expecting a doberman to come up and bite his arm, you know, and soldiers to come and arrest him. But uh, they're not expecting him at this point. And even inside, the believers were so surprised that they questioned the sanity of their servant girl. That's kind and to top it off when they actually clapped their eyes on Peter in verse 16 it says they were astonished so astonished again they forgot he was a fugitive they're making so much noise and Peter's like shh now here's what we see God even uses prayers offered up with half strength faith to bring about his purposes do we believe that? when God uses people like us imperfect and many if not every way, to employ us as his agents and his sovereign work in the world. Isn't that a great thing? What a thing to partner in. And I wonder if, based on the example of the church here, is this how we respond to adversity? Or is this how we respond to the the tide that's against us in our city, 2% Bible-believing, gospel-centered Christians not. When the spread of the gospel is stifled by the pride of those around us, do we respond to that adversity with prayer? Earnest, strenuous prayer? Well, we always say we should pray, but many of us perhaps struggle to believe that it's really powerful, especially in situations like this. But it is, and this text proves it. I mean, how much of it is going, how much is it for us of us just going through the motions in our prayer? But earnestness really indicates passion. How's your prayer life on the day to day? That's what helps prepare us, of course, for the time when adversity comes, when suffering or hardship or question marks over what's next in life comes. Do we pray? Do we believe in prayer? Sometimes we worry too much about praying perfectly that we forget to pray earnestly. Well Luke shows us in the first instance that Herod is humbled by a weak but praying church. That's one of the ways he's going to oppose the proud. The second thing that we see in this text in the way that he opposes Herod is that he humbles him with ease by the ways by which God opens doors. Peter's escape, if you've already noticed, in verses 6 and following, 6 to 17, is it's no Shawshank redemption, is it? I mean, there's no need to, to dig his way out of prison. He was broken out by the Lord's. And again, the fact that it's the Lord's work is crystal clear in the text. You only have to look at Peter's passivity. In the text, it's almost comical. To start with, when the light shone in the cell, uh, he was asleep. Verse seven says the angel appeared, the light shone, but he still, but Peter still needed to be woken up, told to put on his clothes. Now that angel knows how I feel getting my kids dressed in the morning. Uh, Put your clothes on and put your shoes on. No, the other foot, you know. Then his chains fell off, and verse nine, Peter following the angel. He has no idea what's happening at all. He thinks it's some kind of vision. He doesn't actually understand what's going on until he's out in a couple of streets away. And verse 10 for me contains some of the, one of the most striking images of the humbling of Herod in this whole thing. The doors of the gates that led to the city opened for them, plural, as in Peter and the angel, and they went through it. And the text points to the fact that even the angel was passive at this point. The Lord is doing the rescuing. And Peter's own testimony sums that up in verse 11. As he came to his senses, he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. Well, proud Herod is humbled by a sovereign work of God's. I mean, not even four squads of soldiers, iron chains or bolted doors can keep the one God decides to free. By the way, the power that's exerted by the Lord God in this instance demonstrates to us his ability to save. Which then feeds into maybe a question that comes up towards the start of the text concerning James. Because why was it that James was martyred? Well, it wasn't because God couldn't save him. This text proves that he could have. It's just that James's work was done David Livingston, great missionary to Africa many many years ago said I am immortal until my work is done and James' work was done so the Lord took him home, Peter had work to do so he set him free I wonder if we trust the Lord's sovereignty in times of hardship and difficulty even at times when we experience proud people railing against us, the church So when the person elected as MP in our constituency opposes the backward morals of Christians and in favor of something more progressive, uh, do we trust in the almighty power of God? When we work beside someone who mocks us for our belief, not because he believes something else, but because by making us look silly, it makes him look good. It's a pride thing. Do we trust God's sovereignty in situations like that? There are tens and hundreds of examples that we could give. The fact of the matter is that God sees, God knows, God hears, and God acts. And God can do immeasurably more than even we ask for or imagine. Of course, this is the reason why the church prayed, right? This is why the church prayed they already knew as they look, we can look back in acts for ourselves and see miraculous ways in which the the leaders of the church were delivered from the hands of the authorities from religious opponents who threatened to take their lives even the apostle paul knew that from acts chapter 9 we look back don't we to past acts of god's work in our lives or even in the lives of others to, to remind us of who God is and what he has done I think we see this particularly in the book of Ephesians when in one of his prayers in, in Paul has two key prayers in the book of Ephesians He he refers he asks for strength power wisdom but he the basis of his question is linked to the resurrection of Jesus yeah you Lord God you who can raise the dead please could you give us this does that Reflect the way that we pray Lord you have saved our souls by sending your son to die for us and raised him from the dead you can do great things and we ask you Lord in Jesus name according to your will do dash 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 it's a wonderful thing to do to reflect on the sovereign power of God his wonderful deliverance the way he's brought about awakenings in the past deliverance in the past revivals we should pray knowing that God rules the world this is the reason the church prayed and this is one of the things that God employed to humble a proud man God uses earnest prayers and God uses open doors to humble Herod but in this final section shows that Herod didn't really get the message so God humbled him by means of a wormy death because Herod had taken his pride a step too far Look with me verses 18 to 24. Uh, once again, we find Herod, really with the same two problems that he had at the start of the text, driven by a desire to be seen as powerful and popular. Powerful in verses 18 to 19. He has the four squads killed. And then we see in this Tyrant Sidon episode that he is, well, he's manipulating food reserves. He's, he's throwing his political weight around again. And, of course, he's driven by this desire for popularity. We see that in verses 21 to 23 again. He's putting on a show. Because Herod, like any proud man or woman, loves the praise of people. And now, notice this in verses 21 to 23. The kingly imagery is really strong in these verses. Luke wants us to see a man with power. Okay? He's wearing royal robes. Sitting on a royal throne. Making a royal speech. And the crowds are throwing their praise at him. But this is no God save the queen. It's the king is a God. The king is a God. This is not the voice of a man, but a God. And there it is right there. Herod's quiet. Not like Peter. Do you remember Peter when he, when he went to Cornelius' household? Cornelius had the vision, Send for Peter, bring him here. Peter receives a vision, goes to Cornelius' house. He walks in. Cornelius falls at his feet in reverence, it says. Oh, worship. What does Peter say? Thank you. No, he doesn't. He says, get up. I'm only a man myself. Now, that would have been a good response for Herod, wouldn't it? That would have been the right response, But no, the pinnacle for a prideful person who loves adulation and praise is to be worshipped as a god. That's what Herod wanted. That's what he presented himself as. There's a Jewish historian that Matt referred to this morning, a guy called uh, uh, Josephus, who reports on a number of historical events around the time of Jesus that tie beautifully with the scriptural text to show us again how truthful and reliable it is. And Josephus reports on this very same occasion, but with a little bit more detail. He explains that, that that Herod staged the whole thing. It was like putting on Disney on ice. He set up the stage in the amphitheater and was careful enough to time his appearance on the stage at the time that the sun was rising and would shine most gloriously on his face to make him radiant. And Josephus said, He wore a robe made of silver thread. It was made of silver, so that when that light shone on him, it wasn't just—it didn't just make him radiant. It made him reflective. He shone, and Josephus said, "This is a quote: He shone so brightly in the morning sun that people hailed him as a god. The king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery." So, Luke. And Josephus agree. Theologian and historian agree. That therefore, that God's judgment fell because Herod glorified himself instead of God. And verse 23 said, Immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, i don 't think we 're meant to imagine scenes for horror movies or Indiana Jones. you know i don 't think he was consumed by hundreds of worms with piranha-like teeth, or you know, maybe God can do those things. but <laughs> well, I think Josephus tells us that when the praise of men was at its most ecstatic, Herod doubled over in severe pain and died five days later. The likelihood is he died of tapeworm. The parasitic infection blocking the intestine or eating holes in it causing peritonitis. Huge infection of the insides where you're in trouble. And isn't it funny that Herod thinks he is so mighty and so strong but actually he's weaker than tapeworm. Now if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian you might think that pride is a good thing. You might recognize that in some instances it can be a bad thing but you might not really understand that it's actually a wicked thing. But it is a wicked thing and it has the potential to make a monster of us all because there is a Herod in all of us who desire to rule our own lives and for popularity and power will make decisions and shape our lives around the gain from these things. We all struggle with pride. I struggle with pride. We all want to live our lives our own way. And we all love being praised. But the Bible teaches that there's only one who's worthy of praise. And that's the Lord God. And when we start to accept praise as Herod did. For the kind of things that God has given to us as gifts. Not things that we've earned or or created for ourselves. Well, God opposes us god opposes us when we refuse to give him the glory that he deserves he uses various means at various points in our lives to try and help us to see that our pride will result in our destruction as proverbs teaches us in fact the bible tells us that we will all die without if we all who die in christ without christ sorry let me say that again and be crystal clear (laughs) The Bible tells us that all who die without Christ will, like Herod, suffer a wormy death. Did you know that? Now, I'm not talking about burial, becoming food for worms, as the phrase goes. I'm talking about a real place called hell. The place that Jesus himself described in Mark 9:48 as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not in other words it's an eternal humbling it's an eternal humbling and a consequence of continuing pride of seeking to sit on the throne of our own lives when actually the ownership and the rulership of our lives belongs entirely to someone else the Lord God Isaiah 46 9 and 10 God says I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me. If we claim credit for something that he's done, we're robbing him of the glory that he deserves. And to do so is to set yourself up as a contender for his throne. And no one who goes toe to toe with God wins. No one. If you oppose God, if you oppose Jesus, you lose. So you can see where our pride, that wicked pride, leaves us in a terrible condition, a terrible predicament. But the good news is that God has made a way for us to be rescued from our pride. In fact, from every other sin, he sent his son to rescue us. That's the word that Peter uses, rescue. I mean, images of rescue should be really quite fresh in our minds just now, particularly after the Nepalese earthquake. I saw a video just the other day of of a a Nepalese baby being rescued after five days buried under rubble. And this baby was lying there in a hopeless situation with huge, unbelievably big rocks over the top of it. The baby was in a hopeless situation until the bloodied hands of a rescuer removed every crushing weight to pull it from certain death. And that's a picture of what Jesus does for us with bloodied hands and feet and head and back he removes the crushing weight of sin when he dies on the cross for us removes the wrath of God from us and pulls us from certain death to new life that's why the cross of Jesus Christ is so important nothing in all of history helps us to see ourselves as we ought to see us like the cross we often sing a song that includes the line when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride we when we come to the cross are shrunk down to size and hate the thing that we once gloried in that's why if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian you can be rescued by confessing, praying and receiving confessing your sin before God acknowledging it for what it is by praying with thanksgiving that he sent Jesus to die for us to take away that sin and to receive in doing so forgiveness for sin and eternal life in his name we'd love for you to do that tonight why don't you take one of the connect cards even as we close with a prayer of response shortly just to Take time to pray a prayer like that, CPR, confess, pray, receive, and tell us about that. Fill in the Connect card. But brothers and sisters who love Jesus, we should see that God opposes the proud, and we should recognize what verse 24 tells us quite clearly, and the word of God spread. Once more the Lord God has shown us that even in the face of some kind of prideful despotic ruler who even for the sake of his own personal pride and personal gain threatens to hinder the spread of the gospel to all nations is opposed. Humbled. The gospel and its spread really is unstoppable. We may live in hard times for the gospel in Edinburgh, 450,000 people are living as rulers of their own little kingdoms, enjoying power and popularity or as much of it as they can get, but this text helps us to see that change is possible. Even the entire picture of the text is turned on its head. I mean, it begins with James is dead, Peter's in prison and Herod's winning. But in the end, you have Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God spreading. That's what our God can do. So we must pray earnestly, trusting in the Almighty God of heaven and earth who rules over all, who opens doors, recognizing that we are safe until God's work is done. Therefore, we spread the word. Christ died for our sins trust in him poor contempt and all that pride that richest gain it's all loss Christ is all let's bow our heads let's take one minute to respond to God personally in prayer if you're not a Christian confess your sin may I encourage you pray with thanksgiving receive forgiveness and eternal life tonight and brothers and sisters pray earnestly for God in his might to open doors to spread the word through us despite the pride that we see in us and around us.